Hello, and welcome to Gendering Geopolitics, special edition of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policies Contours podcast. Each episode will consist of conversations with scholars and practitioners from around the world about issues of gender and international affairs. My name is Callie Mitchell, and I'm the host of Gendering Geopolitics and an analyst at the New Lines Institute. Today, I'm joined by Amal Nasser, Boar Gabrelian, and Anastasia Moiseva, legal experts currently working on conflict-related sexual violence and sexual and gender-based crimes at the Global Rights Compliance Foundation. Thank you so much for joining me today to discuss sexual and gender-based crimes in Ukraine. To start, Amal, could you tell me a bit about Global Rights Compliance and the organization's activities in Ukraine? Yes, of course. First of all, thank you so much for having us and for initiating this very important conversation. Global Rights Compliance is a non-for-profit international organization. It works on human rights issues around the world and on access to justice. We have been present in Ukraine since 2015. As you probably know, Russia's armed aggression started in Ukraine in 2014, and we have shortly after started working on addressing conflict-related crimes committed since 2014 by being directly here present in Ukraine. But as you might imagine, of course, our work has significantly increased since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February 2022. The workload that we have perhaps slightly mirrors the increase of the scale and intensity of the crimes that we are seeing today in Ukraine. Global Rights Compliance is part of the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group. This group was established in May last year to coordinate support to accountability efforts in Ukraine. And as part of that, we are part of what we call the mobile justice teams. And these are teams that are in place to increase the capacity of the Office of the Prosecutor General, but also regional prosecution offices in investigating and prosecuting conflict-related crimes. Our team includes Ukrainian and international lawyers, investigators, and prosecutors with experience in international law, but also best practice in engaging with victims and witnesses from multiple settings. And we have thematic expertise in the teams as well. So some of us work specifically on sexual and gender-based crimes, and that's us here today, me, Nastya, and Gowar. And we have others working on other themes. So for instance, crimes against or affecting children or environmental crimes and the cluster of crimes that we are seeing regrettably in this conflict. What we do concretely is to provide on the ground support and assistance to investigations and evidence analysis and case building. And I think in our conversation today, we'll give you, myself, Guar and Anastasia, some examples of our activities. Despite the fact that there has been an ongoing armed conflict, as well as continued perpetration of conflict-related sexual violence in Ukraine since the 2014 Russian annexation of Crimea, the criminal justice system has historically not been very engaged in the prosecution of these crimes of sexual violence. Anastasia, could you tell us a bit about how that has changed since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022? Yeah, sure. So the situations changed significantly. Prior to Psalm 22, there had been insufficient accountability-focused investigations into war crimes in general, not to mention conflict-related sexual and gender-based crimes. Most war-related acts uh, were investigated and prosecuted as domestic crimes, which of course does not reflect their gravity and the context in which they were committed. And there were only a handful of investigations into conflict-related sexual violence, which were also as crimes were also qualified as domestic crimes. However, starting with Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022, the situation changed dramatically. Conflict-related sexual violence was identified as a key priority by the Office of the Prosecutor General, the OPG, 
And such prioritization was also reflected in some institutional developments within the OPG. For instance, last year, the OPG created a specialized conflict-related sexual violence unit. The unit is responsible for leading all sexual and gender-based crimes, investigations, and prosecutions. The unit is also supervising regional prosecutions. And overall, the unit is responsible for developing policies to bring the investigations in prosecution and prosecutions into compliance with the international standards. And we as GROC cooperate closely with the unit on all work matters. It should be also added that a specific strategic plan was adopted this summer, setting out a vision and priorities for the CROC investigations and prosecutions. And overall, the OPG has taken a more proactive role in detecting and identifying incidents of sexual and gender-based violence. For instance, we as mobile justice teams accompanied CRS3 unit prosecutors on some field missions specifically to Zaporizhia and Mykolaiv regions, where the case materials gathered by the regional prosecutors were actually reviewed as to sexual and gender-based crimes, so that these crimes could be qualified as such. I also want to add that such changes, they are not limited to new crimes, crimes committed after 2022, because currently the CRS3 unit is also reviewing uh, the case files uh, which were collected, the case materials which were collected prior to 2022, with the aim of actually detecting and identifying cases of sexual and gender-based crimes and potentially prosecuting them in accordance with the Ukrainian legislation, but also international standards. Thank you. I'm now giving the floor to my colleague, Gohar. We also can reflect here on the question of how the victims' roles changed if we compare it with 2014. So in Ukraine, many victims are reluctant to report to law enforcement agencies for several reasons. An important reason is that many victims continue to suffer from trauma as a result of the crimes they experienced or they were witnessed. And also many fear negative impacts on their families and the stigmatization on the family or community because sexual violence continues to be a difficult topic to talk about. And to illustrate, I would like to quote on a victim describing how the, she felt after the crime. She stated, I am scared all the time. I forgot what normal sleeping means. My husband felt worse since that day. I'm afraid of everyone. When police officers came and I was reporting the incident to them, I was shaking. I realized I'm afraid of men in uniforms. I don't know how to look people in the eyes. With this in mind, we can understand why the number of sexual violence cases might not reflect in scope, despite victims having a right to participate in criminal proceedings. As my colleagues mentioned, we have only 200 plus reported cases of sexual violence. And also another challenge relating to this is that sometimes some victims are not fully aware of the rights, not fully understand the criminal justice process, and uh, are not aware of the possible support measures. And this creates a to the participation. But uh, right now we must know that the current efforts to improve the procedures and the experience of victims with the criminal justice system and the Office of the Prosecutor General emphasized the importance of the victim-centered approach during the investigation of CRSP cases and, for instance, uh, such practices as minimizing the number of the victim interviews, psychological support uh, and medical support for victims during and after legal processes, also they keeping the victims informed 
inform about the status and the progress of the legal processes. However, these changes might take time uh, to be known to victims. And that's also very important to highlight the establishment of an independent unit with the OPG, the Victim Coordination Center, which dedicated coordinators to offer support. The work of this center, once uh, it's fully operational and equipped, will be a good instrument in ensuring support and assistance to victims. So we can actually notice that there is a big changes in the system and we really appreciated it. A lot of the work that you do with the GRC's Ukrainian CRSB Integrated Support Mechanism Project is to strengthen investigation and prosecution of sexual and gender-based crimes in Ukraine, which involves assisting in the ongoing documentation of cases by the Prosecutor General's office. Amal, after more than two years of conflict and of assisting with documentation, what patterns and trends of CRSB have you seen emerge? Do these trends change across geographic areas? Of course, it's been two years since the full-scale invasion, but we are nearing 10 years of Russia's aggression to Ukraine, which again started in 2014. And as in many other conflict situations, the full scale of conflict-related crimes, more broadly, but also including sexual violence, is yet to be known. Currently, Russia's aggression is continuing. Areas are still occupied, which means there is no access to victims, witnesses, and crucial evidence. And even when there is access, for instance, following the liberation of certain areas, it does not necessarily mean that victims are ready to disclose their experiences. Or even if they do, they might not necessarily disclose them fully. And I think Gowar just outlined the challenges that victims experience from the trauma they suffer or their urgent medical and psychological needs, the feeling of insecurity which comes from living under occupation and constant threat. So the readiness to disclose their experiences is not necessarily immediate and is not dependent on liberating the territory. And that means that our understanding of the full scope of crimes, their trends and patterns, might not be complete. However, what we now know from cases that are emerging from occupied areas, but also from areas that have been liberated, we know that sexual violence has been committed against groups, protected groups, namely, for instance, against civilians, but also against prisoners of war. Uh, the victims have been women, men, children as young as three or four year old and people as old as 84, for instance. And they have been subjected to different types of sexual violence or have directly witnessed it, including when it was being committed against family members. And there are harrowing accounts of that. And we might not be able to necessarily talk about patterns per se, but we can say for now from what we have seen thus far and from the ongoing efforts of the prosecutor general in surfacing this type of violence, we can say that sexual violence has been a feature, for instance, in places of detention or other situations of deprivation of liberty. And it has been used as a form of torture. And we can also note that sexual violence has taken place in other contexts. So it's not just in places of detention. It has taken place, for instance, in home searches in occupied areas where there are reports of Russian forces doing home-to-home -home searches, looking for pro-Ukrainian persons or persons holding pro-Ukrainian views. And in that context, different forms of sexual violence have also taken place. But I think it's also important to reiterate that sexual violence, as we see it, is not an isolated act. It has been perpetrated alongside many other conflict-related crimes, including, for instance, killing or torture. And it needs to be viewed as part of that broader criminal conduct.
I think Anastasia mentioned earlier that as of June 2023, the Office of the Prosecutor General of Ukraine had reported 208 cases of conflict-related sexual violence, although the real number of perpetrations is likely much higher. Anastasia, can you talk a bit about what types of cases have been opened by the Prosecutor General's office and how these cases usually progress through the criminal justice system? Yeah, sure. Overall, uh, the OPG and the regional prosecution offices supervise the investigation of a wide array of sexual violence cases. These include cases of sexual violence against men, women, uh, children. As to the specific forms, uh, the investigation into rape, forced nudity, forced witnessing of sexual violence, mutilation, and different forms of sexualized torture, including genital electrocutions, have been ongoing. These acts have been committed against either civilians in Ukrainian territories under Russia's control or against Ukrainian POWs detained by Russia. Also, we cannot discuss these cases in detail because of the confidentiality issues and because the investigations and prosecutions are still ongoing. However, we may bring light to some of the cases which we talked publicly before. For instance, after the liberation of the Kherson region, the Kherson Regional Prosecution Office launched an investigation into crimes committed in detention facilities which were set up by Russia after the occupation of Kherson. And we, as mobile justice teams, assisted the Regional Prosecution Office with reviewing all these materials. And from this, we know that a lot of victim statements explicitly mentioned rape and other forms of sexual violence committed in four detention facilities in Kherson. And in most cases, sexual violence occurred during interrogations in detention facilities by the Russian security services. And, well, both male and female victims were subjected to rape, electrocution of genitals, forced nudity, witnessing of rape of other detainees, and threats of rape and threats of of mutilation. So while there's been ongoing recognition of CRSV globally and increasing efforts to promote accountability for the perpetration of these crimes, we know that as a whole, these crimes of sexual violence go under-prosecuted and perpetrators all too often go free from punishment. Gwar, what specific challenges do victims of CRSV face in trying to achieve justice for what happened to them, and what do you envision as steps forward towards closing this accountability gap? So unfortunately, as you mentioned, around the world, sexual violence is under-prosecuted in both peacetime and in situations of armed conflict, and of course, Ukraine is not unique. So as I mentioned before, all reported cases are prosecuted. The problem is that we already said the scale of atrocity is not illustrated the real situation of violence. And the cases we have currently are unlikely to be representative of all conflict-related sexual violence, also because of what was already said, the trauma experienced by some victims and the stigma around this type of violence and the precarious situation of the ongoing conflict. But uh, what is unique, however, is that it is being investigated actively and these investigations will open the way to prosecution. But we have to be honest and acknowledge that even in the best of situations, the prosecutions are not easy. But with sustained effort, a commitment in the long term, and this can be slowly changed. Amal, how does the domestic Ukrainian criminal justice system feed into or relate to the international legal frameworks like the International Criminal Court or to investigations that are being done by other countries? Can you talk a bit about the principle of universal jurisdiction and how that's being utilized in the case of war crimes committed in Ukraine? This is an important question because the situation that is ongoing currently in Ukraine and the crimes that we are seeing, we can confidently say that these are crimes that shock the consciousness of humanity and should be a concern for the international community as a whole. 
And what we have seen actually from the start of the full-scale invasion is that it is the case. And this explains the mosaic of accountability mechanisms that are engaged currently in the Ukraine situation with investigations, for instance, being open under the principle of universal jurisdiction in, in more than 10 countries currently, but also an ongoing investigation before the International Criminal Court and arrest warrants issued as well relating to the deportation of children, for instance. However, we in Global Rights Compliance focus on domestic justice while fully supporting, of course, all accountability avenues that are seeking to address these abhorrent crimes that we are seeing in Ukraine. And while we support these ongoing justice avenues and the progress that is made through them, we are cognizant that the full weight or the most of the weight of addressing conflict-related crimes in Ukraine will be carried by the domestic justice system in Ukraine, which actually bears the duty, the primary duty, I should say, of investigating these crimes. And of course, had we been in a situation where we can say Russia also bears a duty, which it does, but had we been in a situation where we could say and call on Russia to investigate these crimes and think that it would follow such calls, we would be having a different conversation, or perhaps we wouldn't even be seeing these crimes. But these crimes are ongoing, and they require multiple justice avenues to be engaged to address them in a complementary fashion. But again, the scale of these crimes will genuinely mean that the domestic justice system in Ukraine will be the one dealing with them for the next two or three decades. And to make sure that that happens, it is so important for us to continue to provide support and technical assistance to the justice system, which has been overwhelmed with the scale of these crimes. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of crimes and dozens on a daily basis. And this support should not just be support that lives on for one year or two or three. It should be sustained support and technical assistance and commitment in the next 10 or 20 years even so that we can close this NPNC gap and make sure that all the perpetrators who have committed, perpetrated or contributed to the commission of these crimes are held to account. Great. I think we have a few more minutes. So if it's all right, I just had maybe one question that each of you could answer. I just wanted to know if there's anything that gives you hope or makes you more optimistic about the future of accountability for sexual and gender-based crimes in Ukraine and for the prevention of these crimes moving forward as a whole. I think I'm particularly encouraged by the domestic justice system's almost immediate response to taking on this massive task of investigations and prosecutions of these conflict-related crimes, despite the conflict raging on. And this commitment in itself is extremely encouraging, and we cannot say that we see it often, because what often happens is that when the conflict is still raging, uh, most of the effort is, of course, and even understandably, put into ending the war, security situation. But he here, it's both. It's making sure that the international community helps Ukraine in both in ending this war, but in also investigating and prosecuting these crimes starting from now. And I can also add that as a person who works closely with the CRSV unit, who, as I said, accompanied CRSV prosecutors on some of the field missions, for me, I see how dedicated the prosecutors are. I see that they truly believe in what they do. And I see that they really hope to integrate best international practices, best international standards in their work. So I see that there is a huge effort on their part, and it's something that gives me hope. 
Um, I think that, of course, the cooperation between Ukraine and other international institutions is very important for investigation of TRSV crimes of all of the war crimes. But what is very important that prosecutors and investigators in Ukraine, as Nastya just mentioned, they know and then they understand that they are homework and then they want to do that in a good level. They really appreciated the all support which is done by the such organizations as GRC. And we can see how the situation changes. Even from the few months ago, we can see how they try to interact all these suggestions we already done. So that's something which admire us. Yes, it's very encouraging. I think this openness to international assistance and support and increasingly calling for it to continue, but it started very soon after the full-scale invasion. And this openness is something that is a huge opportunity. And we, of course, need to make sure that we continue calling for it because as organizations, we are funded by donors that enable us to do the work. We hope that this funding continues for many of our organizations so that we can continue to support the organizations. For instance, we are funded by the European Commission. And without such funding, we wouldn't be able to provide this support to the Office of the Prosecutor General and other regional offices. And of course, we must appreciate this funding and only hope for it to continue so that we can continue supporting the justice system here in Ukraine. Thank you so much, Amal, Gwar, and Anastasia for sharing your insights on addressing sexual and gender-based crimes in Ukraine, and of course for taking the time to join me on this episode of Gender and Geopolitics. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you.